Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What do you think of when you imagine an abandoned building? Maybe you picture a creepy old house or a closed factory, but odds are that an abandoned asylum comes to mind. They're easily one of the most iconic abandoned places thanks in part to their popularization in movies and TV shows. But what really is the story behind the dozens of enormous asylums and state hospitals that were built across the United States? We're going to look at why these places were built, and how the goal of helping people struggling with mental health issues went terribly awry, leading to the House of Horrors reputation they have now. The story of the asylum system is one of the most tragic aspects of American culture and one still shrouded in stigma and secrecy, a legacy of thousands of destroyed lives that culminated in the closure and abandonment of an expensive and ambitious dream. Today, I'm joined by my good friend Matt Lambros, author of the After the Final Curtain book series and the upcoming After the Final Curtain podcast. I'm Matthew Christopher, and this is Abandoned America. Hey, Matt. How's it going? Pretty good. How are you? I'm okay. It's been a month, I think. It's been, what, like a month since we did our last one? Well, yeah, just about. Yeah, it's been an eventful month for both of us, I think. I had COVID, and I'm over that, which is good. And Olivia and I both in the last two days got our negative results, so that's pretty exciting. And we got a dog named Charlie Peanut Butter. So what what about you? How have you been? I have not gotten COVID, knock on wood. I, you know, it's been the holiday season, and I have two young children. So it has pretty much been all about that for the past month or so. Oh, that's terrific, though. I mean, and as for COVID, like, totally do not recommend it. Two thumbs down. It's been kind of a crappy month because of that. I didn't really get much of anything done. And I know we had planned on recording this a couple of times. And then I was like, I'm coughing all the time. So, well, I think, uh, you know, listeners will probably appreciate us waiting a little bit. But maybe we can edit in some coughs just so they can see what they're missing. Oh, I'll probably have one or two organically. Yeah, I'm still working on it. But uh, yeah, so I'm excited to talk with you about this. This is a subject that both of us are very interested in. What got both of us started in this, right? Yeah, I would. It's pretty safe to say that without abandoned asylums, and in particular, the one that I'm going to talk about today, I would not be co-hosting this with you. And which one is that? That would be Danvers State Hospital in Danvers, Massachusetts. Which is kind of like a legendary one among the hospitals. You know, I mean, that's one of maybe it's hard to say which is the best known but i think if you had like a top three yeah uh, danvers would be up there i mean it was uh said to be um the inspiration for arkham asylum oh cool lovecraft you know it's been in movies over the years my favorite factoid about it is that it was actually built on hawthorne hill which was the home of john hawthorne from the salem witch trials one of the judges oh wow that's where his house was because and a lot of people don't really talk about this, but Danvers used to be Salem Village, and that's where all of the witch trial stuff happened. Salem now it was it was Salem, but it was it wasn't where they took place. Oh, that's really interesting. I never knew about that. I mean, neither of us are like ghost people, but if you were doing a setup for like a haunted asylum sort of thing that's the sort of backstory that you would probably want for it exactly and you know i did take some ghost hunters through the building once (laughs) right 
So I never, when I started out, I never got to go to one that was uh, like Danvers is a Kirk bride. And, you know, we'll get into all this later. I don't want to like steal the thunder from um, what you're talking about. That's kind of a legendary one. But in Philadelphia, Byberry or Philadelphia State Hospital was the one that really got me into exploring, as I think we talked about in our introduction episode. So it was essentially reading and researching about these places, finding out about Byberry and then going there that really kind of changed my life and uh, made me decide that uh, this was something that I had to do more of. And I, I wanted to pursue abandoned buildings in general. And, and kind of ironically, it's one of the few places that I really have like no good photos of. I, I took like a, a point and shoot you know, like an old point and shoot film camera there and uh, used the flash to take pictures. And as you could predict, they're absolutely god awful. I can sympathize with you on that. So I went to Danvers State, and this isn't an exaggeration, probably three to four times a week for about two and a half years. And I have maybe two or three good pictures of the place. When I first went, I was using a camcorder as a digital camera. And so it was like under one megapixel. Yeah. And you know, you just take a, a little still and it would just take a still image from what it was recording. And there, like, it looks like I took photos with a potato. It's, they're horrible. And, <laughs> and then, you know, as I was shooting more and I, I got a little better and I got a couple cool ones. I have some film uh, from the place that I'm, I'm happy with, but for the most part, I don't have anything. And also, I don't have anything good from Byberry either, and I went there twice. So, you know. When you look at that era, it's very easy to kind of guilt yourself for not having anything good. And then you think, oh, yeah, like, you know, around 2000, 2001, 2003, there really wasn't a whole lot good at that point in time in terms of digital cameras digital recording i mean maybe if you were like you know super wealthy but like they were still pretty crap at that point yeah it was all all film the film like everything like so i graduated from high school in 2001 and my graduation present was a digital camera and it was a kodak easy share i think it was 2.2 megapixels you know it was it was not great took okay photos the majority of the photos that i took the first few years once i i said hey maybe i shouldn't shoot with this camcorder uh we're taking with that and it wasn't really until i want to say 2005 2004 when some of the the slrs got a little bit cheaper and you had like the the 10d the rebel you know was it the d d60 was the nikon i want to say and once those were introduced and uh you know, you got a little bit higher in megapixel count. You got to see some uh, some better digital images. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I, you know, I really should have gone back because even when I did have a decent camera, Byberry was still around, but I kept thinking, oh, I'll go back, I'll go back, I'll go back. And then all of a sudden it was like under demolition. I'm excited to do this because I really don't know a whole lot about Danvers aside from it being the setting of Session 9, which is a super famous movie among urban explorers, and kind of the general overview of state hospital history. So this will kind of allow me to get a little more acquainted with that. And hopefully, hopefully I can throw some stuff at you for mental health history, which has always been a passion of mine that maybe you're not familiar with, too. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I will learn a lot from that. I sort of, I don't want to say chickened out, but I definitely chickened out when it came to that. Uh, when I was researching the history of these back when I was really into asylums, it was kind of uh, the history of mental health in America was, was not a pretty one. And while I was fascinated by it, I had to uh, stop at, at some point. So a lot of that I, I don't know. I do know the history of Danvers, uh, you know, going there for two and a half years you and like learning things about the building, you start, you would, st we would start and I'll just say this and then I can talk about it more in a little bit. You know, you start finding out things about the building and then you start going to look for them. So like for a while we hunted uh, the cornerstone, we tried to find the cornerstone. Right. Which I think, you know, if we were smart, we would have just looked outside because that's where it was. But <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also the hardest place to like go look if you're trying to avoid security. Exactly, exactly. You know, the, not that the security at Danvers and not to talk bad about security people who are just doing their job. 
but they weren't the best. So, yeah, so this will be something where hopefully we'll both come away with it with a bit of a uh, new understanding of it. I have uh, prepared kind of big old history of mental health care in the U.S. And one thing that, uh, well, there are two things that I kind of wanted to uh, preface this with. So the first thing is that there's a lot of terminology that's used in history that is no longer really acceptable right now. So I hope that people who are listening to this will understand that like if I refer to a lunatic asylum or lunatics in the asylum, I am not uh, personally endorsing the use of stigmatizing phrases. I'm just trying to use the language of the time, which I think is important both uh, in understanding it, but also it's, it's factually correct at that point. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because you can watch in the name of Danvers and how the name changed over the years, what words became unacceptable to say. So when it opened, it was the State Lunatic Hospital at Danvers. Then it was the Danvers Lunatic Asylum. Then it was the Danvers State Insane Asylum. And then finally, it was Danvers State Hospital. Right. I mean, you see that a lot. And what's kind of interesting, and this is a bit of a tangent, but having worked in mental health, one of the things that you see happening is that there are words that are introduced that are meant to be clinical. So, for example, moron, feeble-minded, you know, things like that are originally clinical designations. And then people start using them as insults and slurs. And so then they have this stigma that gets added to them by people using them in reference to things like that. And then I don't know, 20 years later, you say, okay, well, we're not going to use that anymore. And you introduce a new term. And maybe you say mentally retarded, for example, you know, which is one that you certainly would not use now. Now it's developmentally disabled. But the point is that uh, you're kind of, you know, it's a dog chasing its own tail in a way in that as soon as a phrase is introduced, the stigma gets added to it because ultimately we stigmatize mental illness and physical and developmental disabilities. And so you constantly have to change the vernacular of it and the language, you know. And yeah, I mean, that's very interesting. You see a lot of these places going through tons of different name changes over the years as one is no longer acceptable, then the new one's introduced, then the new one's no longer acceptable. So yeah, I mean, the other thing that I wanted to kind of introduce before we talk about this in more depth is that this is a very rich subject. There is a lot of stuff uh, that you can get into. For example, you know, I'll, I'll skip across Dr. Walter Freeman when, when we're talking about him, but people have done whole podcast episodes on him. Each of these people is really fascinating. Each of these places is really fascinating. And you and I have both sort of said that we don't want to turn this into just a state hospitals podcast, but there's a lot of stuff that I think we'll get into later and this is just meant to be an overview of why these places are abandoned, where they came from, why they were what they were. And we could absolutely turn this into a state, state hospital podcast, and we would have not run out of material for a very long time. Correct. So there will probably be quite a bit of that in future episodes. But for right now, this is meant to be kind of your, your primer. All right. So I think with all of that said, let's um, let's go into the mental health history a bit and kind of look at the background of that and how the asylum system worked and where it came from. So, Matt, do you know much of anything about the history of mental health care before even America was founded, like before the American asylum system? Not that much. I can only imagine it was probably horrible. It is. It is. In fact, um, that was one of the things that I think is good to kind of note is that this is really a story of, of ours. You know, a lot of it is just really awful stuff. You see a lot of really sort of cyclical things that, you know, when I talk to you about care for the mentally ill before the asylums, you'll be like, oh, you know, that sounds very similar to what I recall from asylum uh, history in certain senses. So I figured maybe the best place to talk about mental health care. And obviously, there's a wide world of different things that are happening in different places. And I can't really get into it all because we're doing American asylums. But the probably the best known hospital for care for the mentally ill was Bethlehem Royal Hospital, which was established in 1247. Have you heard of this place at all? No. 
you might have under its more kind of colloquial name of bedlam. Oh, yes. Yep. So that was um, the reason even the word bedlam comes about from Bethlehem and the shortening of that. So this place is one of the ones that is kind of very, very infamous in terms of mental health care. And uh, there's not it's not really known when they first started uh, their quote unquote care for mentally ill, but it's it's kind of believed to be somewhere around 1377 to 1403. And there isn't really a lot of information in the medieval period as in terms of mental health care. But when you get to the late 1500s, like 1598, they're already describing it as filthy, the roof is collapsing in 1607. They're ordering clothes and eating vessels for the people in a way that suggests that they did not have them prior to that. Another fun thing about the old Bedlam building was it was built over a sewer that regularly backed up and flooded the place with sewage. So you have this filthy place where people are going to the bathroom and cells and all over the place, people are incontinent, and then the sewer is flooding. So there's a point where they build a newer building. Oh, and the other thing too, before I get to that, um, that's actually really not all that important to the story. So we can just say at some point they build a newer building. And this one was on a public landfill, which shows you the priority they place on these places. And again, I mean, you see that actually a fair amount with U.S. asylums, prisons, things like that, too. They build them on land that they don't want for other stuff in a lot of cases. But probably the most infamous feature of Bedlam is, and in 1598, there's the earliest definitive recorded instance of this. They charged the public to come in and see the lunatics. And so the fee's supposed to go to the care for the inmates, but, you know, it's, it's kind of believed that that was pocketed by the staff. And, you know, there are all sorts of abuses that go on when the public comes in, like them taunting them or poking them with sticks, physical sexual assault, things like that. And basically, like uh, in 1770, they stopped that practice aside from um, like special dispensation given by the governor. But uh, it actually got worse after that happened because at least letting the public in, even though all these other awful things were happening, allowed for some manner of public oversight. And so, you know, the building's falling apart at this point. Again, it's filthy. You know, you see that as kind of a really recurring trend or these uncared for falling apart buildings. But the other thing in terms of the actual care, you know, and and what in the 1700s they used for treatment. So what would you think in that period might be like, how would you, you know, how would you expect that they would deal with the problem of the mentally ill and, and make them better, so to speak? Oh God, were they dunking them in like freezing water? And actually, yeah, cold baths. Uh, cold baths was one of the things. You got it. You know, you have at this point, like there's this this view when the public is coming in to see these people that mental illness is the result of like vice and immorality and ungodly, uh, like lack of uh, godliness or whatever. And so most of the things that you're using as quote unquote treatment are more like behavior management things, which are pain and fear. You know, these places are kind of dungeons. People are shackled up. You know, as I mentioned, people are paying to see these people like they're in a zoo. Uh, There's whipping, beating, cold baths that you mentioned, um, bleeding, purging, starvation, irritant chemicals, things like that. So basically, you know, you have somebody who's dealing with mental illness, they're put into a place like this, and then just for the rest of forever, they're tortured. So that even into the 1700s was kind of par for the course, right? And then, you know, in the late 1700s and early 1800s, you have this rise of reformers. For example, you know, in America, you have uh, Benjamin Rush who is a, a Philly guy, who's actually uh, born in Byberry Township. So you know, a little connection there. But, you know, he believed that mental illness was a medical ailment. He was very progressive in a lot of ways. He was an abolitionist. He believed that alcoholism was a disease. He is kind of viewed as the American father of psychiatry, and he believed in classifying mental illnesses in, in a sort of a, a, a medical manner. 
uh, he also believed in in respect for individuals. Although you know we we can't forget this is the late 1700s, early 1800s. So Rush still had these archaic treatments like purging, bloodletting, restraint chairs, hot and cold baths, and mercury. And then the one that was kind of really a standout was that he thought that insanity was caused by poor blood flow. So to improve the blood flow to the head, he had board that was like a centrifugal force board where you would be spun around to make your blood go to your head. I was definitely gonna, assuming you were gonna say he was drilling holes in their heads or doing, you know, bloodletting to get the blood flow going. Yeah, well, bloodletting, yes. The drilling the holes is a bit later. Later? Oh, (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I thought it was going to be earlier. No, no. I mean, um, again, that may be, uh, depending on where you look and what time, that may have been a treatment. But, you know, I'm kind of trying to compartmentalize this. And that really would have been more in the, uh, the lobotomy section of things. So you have Benjamin Rush in America. And, you know, all across the world, there's this kind of enlightenment and maybe not across the world, but in most of the European countries, in the U.S. at least, there's this view that, you know, we're going to do things differently, we're going to be humane and compassionate. And what's funny is that a lot of them really are not humane and compassionate by today's standards, see Benjamin Rush. But you had uh, Philip Pennell in France, and I may be butchering his name, but he's kind of the father of psychiatry, uh, the father of modern psychiatry in general. And he did away with uh, blistering, bleeding, purging, which were all things that they did at that point. He's sort of really famous for removing the shackles from the patients, which is kind of a long story that I won't get into. But, you know, the place that he's credited with doing it at, he didn't really do it at. uh, He did it somewhere else. But the point is that, you know, he's somebody that's looking at this sort of humane care and viewing people as humans with medical ailments, which is really pretty radical, especially if you're coming from the view that this is all vice and inferior, you know, uh, morality that's leading to this. The other guy that you have is William Took in England, who is also a super progressive guy. He actually sounds like he's pretty cool. Uh, He's a Quaker. uh, He's an abolitionist. And he's a a big opponent of the East India colonization. So he also is, these guys are all into what's called a moral treatment, which is both moral and psychological and emotional treatment. So the idea is that you have respect for individuals, you have this kind of, you treat them like a family, there's minimal restraints, treatment depends on conduct, you try and reason with them out of it, you know, you try and appeal to them and give them, um, in essence, for the time, what the least restrictive setting is you know, with these attendants that are going to be intelligent and sensitive and listen to them. So that was kind of where things are at at that point. Again, you know, there's a lot here that I have to kind of leave out. But, you know, one of the next people that I feel is really important to kind of get into is Dorothea Dix. So everybody's familiar with Dorothea Dix if you're an asylum buff. So what do you know about Dorothea Dix? I know her name. I know there was a hospital. I know that she revolutionized the treatment of the mentally ill, and that is about all I can remember. Remember, most of my asylum knowledge has been replaced with theater knowledge. <laughs> trying yeah. to think, is it Homer Simpson that there's this episode of The Simpsons where he learns something new and a bunch of things like Maggie's birthday fly out of his head? That's sort of how well, I am. Yeah, I think that's me too, right? The difference is I think I feel like I just sort of blocked up all new knowledge and now it's very hard to actually find room to slot it in. So a lot of it just falls out the other ear. But Dorothea Dix, so you're right. She revolutionizes mental health care in a lot of ways. She starts out, she's a school teacher and an early mental health advocate who in her early career has a modeling school for girls in Boston. The breakdown while she's doing that and travels to England for health and meet Samuel Tuke, who's the grandson of William Tuke, who I just mentioned a moment ago. And they're really into this lunacy reform movement, and she gets really invested in it as well. So when she comes back to the States, she works in prisons. She sees how the mentally ill, who are referred to as loony paupers, are chained in the basement. They're kept with violent inmates. And she really feels strongly that this is not the way to care for people. So at this point in time, In America, like a lot of the care, quote unquote care, 
for the mentally ill, for people who don't have money or family or friends to help them is uh, your town contracts with an individual, just like a random person. They just pay a rando to take care of the mentally ill. And obviously, you know, you, you if you know how people are and human nature works, that's not a great system. So she basically writes a report to the state legislature and says, I proceed, gentlemen, to briefly call your attention to the present state of insane persons confined within this commonwealth in cages, stalls, pens, chained, naked, beaten with rods, and lashed into obedience. So, you know, she's really outraged at this. She, she goes and visits the mentally ill in poor houses, jails, locked in families, addicts, etc., and goes all across the U.S. doing this and speaks to state legislators about the need for care all over. So. One of the one, the things that uh, she was very successful in earlier on was that she is talking to the legislator. She uses the example of an elderly legislator that they're all familiar with, who's now in the basement of an almshouse with nothing, and basically says, you know, imagine this poor individual who, you know, um, I'm not going to name, but you all know who we're talking about. So the people are, are really moved by that. And the first state hospital is founded, uh, Harrisburg State Hospital, which I've been to, I photographed that one. And that's the first public mental health hospital. And Dix ultimately founds uh, 32 hospitals and retires to a private residence in Trenton, which we're gonna probably go into in a later episode because Trenton just like, wow, there's some stories there but she dies in 1887. The other person is Thomas Kirkbride, Dr. Thomas Kirkbride. So what can you tell me about him? Because I know you're familiar with him. Well, I know that Trenton was the first Kirkbride building, the first Kirkbride plan asylum. Correct. I know that that, that was his, it was his theory that, uh, that a lot of these buildings were built. So Danvers, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, was a Kirkbride building. And that was, uh, his theory was that environment uh, helped. Like basically don't put people in basements and chain them up with no light. Uh, put them in rooms with the sun where they can see the sun and get uh, fresh air. And so they built these hospitals so that they could maximize the amount of sunlight and air circulation. So you had basically long rambling wings of a, and if you look at them from above, they look like a bat and uh, they were staggered so that each one would get the amount of sunlight and fresh air that they needed, but it also uh, helped uh, to create privacy for the patients. Yeah, that's actually a really good, uh, really good description of it. And you know, basically, so, you know, just to kind of give a little bit of the story of who Kirkbride is, he's uh, an asylum keeper, and he's known for his architectural influence on hospitals, like people refer to them as the Kirkbride plan, right? Mm -hmm. And he also is a Philly guy. In fact, his uh, grave is at Laurel Hill Cemetery, which is like 15 minutes from my house, and we periodically go walking through. I have not found his grave yet, but apparently it's an unremarkable one. But he started at Friends Asylum, which is a Quaker hospital in Philly. He becomes the superintendent of Pennsylvania Hospital for the Insane. And he writes this book. And, you know, you have to remember that, like, at this point in time, titles for things are like eight pages long. But it's on the construction, organization, and general arrangement of hospitals for the insane with some remarks on insanity and its treatment. So that's is uh, his his brief title there. He writes that in 1854. And like you said, you know, Kirkbride Hospital is the plan that he lays out. The, the main thing is to maximize air circulation and sunlight. You want to have the beauty of nature around people. That's supposed to help people out. Like you said, there are these massive bat-shaped buildings. And the one thing that also is kind of worth noting is that the further you go out, so the, the center of the bat, the bat body, so to speak, is usually going to be your administration section, right? And the further out and the wings that you go, the sicker people are going to be. So the idea kind of being that if they're going to get out, they have to go through more and more of the building to do so. So he's another figure that if you're talking about hospitals in the U.S., you really can't skip over him. He has 73 hospitals built in the U.S. on his plan 
um, between 1845 and 1910. And um, the reason they stopped building these is because, you know, first of all, like just theory is changing, but also you have these, these massive hospital buildings that are hard to keep up. They're expensive. So one of the ones that I think is the best example of a Kirkbride is one we're both familiar with. Uh, you care to guess? Is it Hudson? It is Hudson. It's Hudson River State Hospital, which you and I went to. And that was built in 1868. And how would you describe Hudson aside from being a death trap? If you had to tell people about what you picture it being like back in the day. A bat with one wing. <laughs> yeah, it did have it did have a stunted wing. But I mean, like, how would you describe the interior of what you picture the place like compared to other state hospitals? You're going to get it as soon as I tell you. You're going to be like, oh, crap. I don't know. Uh, it, you know, it's uh, to me like it, it, they're very similar. It's like similar to I don't know. You're going to have to tell me this. because I don't know what. So, well, prepare to be like, damn it. I knew this because uh, you do. But it was very elaborate and extra extravagant in terms of the building. It was really expensive building, a lot of stained glass windows. Oh, yes. Yeah, I knew it. And more stained glass than most of the other ones that I've been to. Right, right, exactly. You have much more decorative woodwork. You have like pressed tin in the ceiling. You have these stone carvings that are in the outside. Really a gorgeous building. I mean, it's um, uh, high Victorian architecture, which is... High Victorian refers to like medieval forms being used in the building, but um, took about 30 years to build, went way over budget, way over budget. Frederick Law Olmsted, who's the guy who designed Central Park, designed the grounds for this. He actually designed the grounds for a number of state hospital buildings. Well, so, you know, you can really tell that they're throwing a fair amount of money. And this is actually a fairly like contentious thing when they're building it, particularly in Hudson. Like people are kind of pissed because they're like, why is this so expensive? And the building is half a mile from end to end. And they have over 6,000 people that are treated at its peak. And the other thing that's kind of worthwhile noting is that they used a uh, Southern yellow pine in the floors, which is pretty expensive and was one of the things that they were sort of contesting as it was built, but it's also believed that that is part of the reason that the floors decayed as badly as they did. Because so, time. Yeah. How would you describe the floors there in the years that you've been there after the fire? Well, after the fire, they got, they were really bad. But so the reason that, so I, I've been going to Hudson for almost 20 years. That's a lot. And pre-fire, like, so, like, I want to say 2004-ish. The floors were not that bad. They were only bad in certain spots, and they were only bad in some of the rooms. You could walk down the main halls without that many issues. Some of some floors, yeah, were terrible. What happened was they came through and sealed up and patched up the roof. And then they sprayed it with this, like, sealant. They also took down a lot of the lightning rods at this time. Right. Uh, yeah. That worked out real well for them. And after that happened, the building started to get really, really humid on the inside in the summer. It was always, we always liked to go to Hudson in the winter because everything was frozen. Like the, the floors were soggy, but they were hard in the winter. So it was, it felt safer. Right. And then after they sealed everything up, it was just like, you take your camera out and it would just fog up because it was so like so humid inside the buildings and then that's when everything started that's everything ghosty. started collapsing oh it's the ghosts right orbs but that's when all the floors started collapsing right so and and that actually i mean um I, you know i can't speak from an engineering standpoint about the southern yellow pine you're you're right i mean water really does damage buildings quite a bit like that and um the fire in 2007 was huge uh, and that's you know there's speculation on that being an explorer or the you know, who was there at the time oh. or a lightning rod there's speculation in the exploring community that it was an explorer according to the poughkeepsie fire department it was lightning because there was a lightning storm that day i don't believe the speculation Not, yeah and, I, and personally i mean i don't know so the person that it is speculated that it is I understand that he rubs a lot of people the wrong way, but I know him when it comes to buildings and not that type of person. So, okay, so the fire happens regardless of what the uh, cause of the fire is. 
And I think it was like a seven alarm fire. Do you know what the alarm refers to? Uh, I didn't know this until I... Seven fire departments? Yes, it is. I did not know that. So anyway, the Hudson is a great example and probably one of my favorites of the Kirkbride buildings. But There are a number of them, and there are a lot of buildings like Harrisburg State Hospital that were built as a Kirkbride building and then later got divided up and new buildings added on. I was just going to say, before we leave Hudson, do you know why it has a stunted wing? No, I do not. They ran out of money. <laughs> well, that would that would make sense. And you know that. So on the blueprints, the Kirkbride is building 51. There were that many buildings built before the Kirkbride. Oh, my God. There was, so buildings one and two, if you're on the property, I don't know if it's still there, but if you head back from, uh, if you're standing at the Kirkbride and you head back into the woods behind all the buildings, behind the chapel, there was a large fenced-in area, and that's where buildings one and two used to be. They were demolished, I think, probably in the 80s. It was a building, the, the hospital was still open when they were taken down. And one of the things that that kind of tells you too, which is interesting is, so, okay, that that building was what, 51, you said? The Kirkbride, yeah, it was 51. Okay. So, I mean, that tells you too, like how enormous these properties are, you know? And I mean, essentially like an asylum is meant to be a, like its own community, you know, they have their barber shops and their fire department and greenhouses and farms and all the things that are supposed to keep them going without having to involve the community. And in fact, communities um, sort of competed to get them. It's like, you know, now the way a city fights to get an Amazon warehouse or something. And you see that in like Taunton State Hospital, for example. But these places also produced a lot of stuff. They they produced things that kind of, they, they were jobs for the community, but they also produced goods that were sold elsewhere. So you know, you have this period where in the very early days of the hospital, even though there's overcrowding almost immediately, like when you look at Taunton, for example, that's one of the things where it's built to alleviate overcrowding and then almost immediately it's overcrowded. And one of the reasons that I, I found out that that was because is a lot of like townships realized that they could kind of dump their people that they had in township funded places into the hospitals. So where originally you have this kind of, you know, moral treatment for the mentally ill, the townships are dumping in people that are, you know, kids that they, well, we'll get to this. I mean, all the people that get dumped into them, but all the people that they really don't want to deal with, um, including people with like dementia and people with Alzheimer's, which really, I mean, you know, moral treatment is not going to help them. Yeah. And that's one of the things that you see being a problem even now. Like even when I worked in a hospital, you have radically different treatments for somebody with like bipolar disorder than you do with somebody with anxiety or someone with OCD or someone with depression or someone with Alzheimer's or someone with schizoaffective disorder. I mean, these are all different things that if you want to treat them, you need to really focus on creating a milieu that is best suited for those particular things. But they don't do that. They just throw everybody in a ward and try and figure, you know, basically try and manage them. And it's it's really unsuccessful, but um, kind of what we're getting into is after this period where, very short period where th things are good, you see overcrowding, disease, neglect, as routine takes over reform. And there's really this kind of view as it goes on, particularly when you get into the early 1900s and eugenics gets really popular. And um, you're familiar with uh, eugenics? What would you say about eugenics, aside from it's god-awful? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, it's with the Holocaust. Yeah. And I mean, uh, eugenics, which was something that was very popular in America, kind of culminated, if you could call it that, uh, in the final solution. So basically, this theory is that, you know, using genetics, right, inferior people with inferior genes produce more inferior people. And the people that are viewed as inferior are minorities, they're the poor, they're homosexuals, they're mentally ill or developmentally disabled people. Basically, they're anybody that society, oh, oh and if, I mean, basically, they're anybody that's viewed as, like I said, undesirable. And the idea shifts from 
you know, we're going to care for these people like the mentally ill with, with compassion. We're going to actually try and treat them to let's warehouse all these people in a building. Let's have involuntary sterilizations in a lot of them. And let's just let them die off. And Hitler took that an additional step, you know, but if, if you look at this as a form of logic, obviously a very evil and incorrect logic, but a form of logic, the next logical step would be, well, instead of just warehousing these people and killing them via neglect, why don't we just kill them? Yeah. And, you know, that's basically a thing that you, you see happening uh, right up to that line where, you know, you've unwanted children, you've, uh, let's say that you're, uh, you have political views that aren't popular, or you're too outspoken as a woman, or your husband wants to cheat on you. Uh, there are a lot of women that were basically put in asylums for very, very uh, thin pretenses, and then left there forever. And basically, this is, you know, something that you see happening in the early 1900s in the asylums. Yeah, you know, one of the things that uh, when we were exploring Danvers, and everyone who explores abandoned buildings knows this, especially asylums, you always get surprised at what gets left behind. And you'd assume that when a building is closed, an asylum or a hospital, that they would remove all the patient documents and paperwork and put them in a safe place. You'd assume that, but that is not the case at all. And at Danvers, there was a room in the basement that was the, probably, you know, I will probably die of some lung disease due to the time I spent in that room because of how moldy and musty it was. And you could really only spend about a half hour in there before getting lightheaded. But, you know, a lot of it was patient files and patient stories. And like, and what I remember being so surprised about was how many women were dropped off there between the ages of 12 and 16 because of their, they got their periods or PMS and not like, you know, being, when I was being a you know 20 year old kid, I had no idea that this was something that happened and just right. being like, what? Like, that doesn't make any sense. And a lot of the people, like you'd look and you'd, you'd have a thick patient file and it'd be someone who was dropped off there at 16 and died in the hospital at 55 or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and really like, the pretenses again. I mean, you had you had people that were uh, transgender or homosexual, like Lou Reed, for example, spent time in an asylum. You had people with Parkinson's, like Woody Guthrie. You basically have all these people that are kind of oh oh. And the other thing too. I mean, if you're uh, coming off of your teenage years and you see this in a the chart, there's a scary thing. But uh, like just masturbating. Yeah. So there are these things that you can get pitched in there for. And like you said, you spend your whole life in that place and when you die they give you a, a unmarked grave with a number on it and the key to those numbers is kept in those record rooms that you just discussed it full of moldering files collapsing on it and um, there are a lot of people that I mean there were there were hundreds of thousands of people that passed through these buildings and you know let's say it's your aunt or something and uh, you, you don't know anything about her. You know, you, you know nothing except that she died in the asylum. You never saw her. The family never talked about her. And let's say that you want to find anything. Well, the records are in a falling apart room in the basement of a hospital covered with mold. You're never going to see them. You can't even find out where that grave is. Um, so, uh, you know, this is, <laughs> this is a thing that I get really kind of riled up about, as I think anybody with any decency should. But, you know, that's not even like the worst of it. I mean, you know, you, you have, again, like physical and sexual abuse happening in the asylums. You have um, uh, medical experimentation, you know, and, and we're not I'm not talking as much about the institutions and state schools that were for the people with uh, physical ailments or uh, develop, developmental disabilities. But, you know, they're usually kind of sister buildings. And in Fernald, which we've already talked about doing a future episode on, you know, like a Quaker fed these kids radioactive oatmeal there. It's really like a kind of, again, I mean, a house of horrors in the sense that like the worst thing that you could think of, asylums were worse. And when you look at 
Byberry, for example, and this was one of the things that really drew me to Byberry, was there's this photo expose that's done around World War II, like a little bit after that. And I think it was Life magazine. It wasn't called The Shame of the States. That was uh, Deutsch's book on it. But anyway, they have this expose that's done where somebody sneaks a camera into the wards. And you have these people that are in these crumbling wards. They have no clothes. You know, at this point during World War II, there were like staffing shortages. So, I mean, they would just get any random drunk off the street to come into the wards. Uh, you have these people that are looking very abused. And I, I always say, I feel like you can mix some of these photos together with the uh, concentration camps. And you get many of them right, maybe, as to which was which. Uh, but you wouldn't get all of them right. And that's not okay, really not okay. So, you know, you have people that are dying of starvation, neglect, exposure, malnutrition, abuse. Uh, the hospitals are really, really overwhelmed. And one of the ones that um, was built to alleviate overcrowding is Pilgrim State Hospital, which both you and I have been to. Mm -hmm. And that was the largest psych hospital ever. It was 2,000 acres in four counties. And in 1954, they have like 14,000 patients and 4,000 employees. And then 15 minutes away, you have King's Park Asylum that has 9,300 patients. What's the other one that was right? Such the was it Brentwood? Centralized. No, no, no. There was another one. Okay. Uh, there was another one in Among Island, not centralized. Slip. Brentwood sounds right. I want to say it's Brentwood. I could be completely wrong, but it was like the main building looked like Building 93 at Kings Park. And it, I want to say it came down in like the 80s or 90s. Okay. And Building 93, if for those who don't know, is like 13 floor skyscraper of a building that is probably the most recognizable building at Kings Park. Sorry. Yeah, of course. I had to look it up. Brentwood is where Pilgrim uh, is. Okay. You know what we'll do? We will look this up and put the name of it in the show notes. Okay, sounds good. Yeah. But yeah, so, you know, as I mentioned, the institutions are in the same position. You have this horrible overcrowding, no resources, places like Fernald, for example, where they're taking like orphanages and just dumping the orphans into these uh, environments. You have staff that are overworked, underpaid, unable to manage the environment. I mean, the three things that I think always lead to bad conditions are overcrowding, understaffing, underfunding. And what's interesting is that, you know, you look at Bedlam, for example, and when you read the reports of that, okay, like, let's put out the public being able to come in and like, you know, beat the inmates or whatever for 10 shillings, like the filthy conditions, the falling apart buildings, people being mal, uh, malnourished, you know, all of these are things that you see again and again. And because it's because basically what the cycle is, is you have this reform, you build the buildings, then you start underfunding them, there's no oversight, and then they start turning into these hell holes. And then people are like, oh my God, these are hell holes, we have to do something about this. So, you know, the public with its perpetual 10 minute attention span does something about reform. And then they let them fall into disrepair again. So basically, I'm going to skip over. I feel like Walter Freeman, we can kind of talk about some other time. But, you know, that was basically under the, uh, you know, the various things that various sorts of treatments that include like insulin shock therapy, lobotomies, you know, cold baths, um, you know, things like that. I mean, these are still uh, really kind of what we would consider uh, electroshock therapy, uh, they're kind of considered barbaric treatments, even though in some form or another, some of these things are still used. So actually, the one thing that is important about Freeman, I got I to at least do a little bit about him. I don't want to make this a super long episode, but Walter Freeman is this kind of uh, huckster that, quote, you know, you, you would say perfects, if, if that's a word you could use, the transorbital lobotomy. And the way that he perfects this is, uh, you know, the lobotomy was something that was much more of like a surgical procedure beforehand, but he basically figures out you can hammer an ice pick in through the eye socket into the brain and lobotomize people, which is uh, basically scrambling their brains. I mean, you're supposed to be like severing connections in the brain, but you know, he's such a show off that at different points, he's like doing it with two ice picks at once and just, you know, reducing people to 
vegetables, you would say. And you know, this is something that if you're on an overcrowded ward and you have a violent or difficult to manage for whatever reason, maybe they're just sassy and you don't like sassy patients, you know, uh, and you give them a lobotomy and all of a sudden they're like super docile. I mean, they don't know how to talk anymore. They uh, go to the bathroom in their pants, but that's what happens to them. Um, it, in a lot of cases, this was considered like an upgrade. And these people might be shipped home then. Uh, that was always the big thing was getting people out of the asylums. So the key thing that you should take away from this, aside from the fact that this is to alleviate asylum overcrowding, and that Freeman is a, a show-off and a huckster, is he gives he presides over a lobotomy to Rosemary Kennedy. In part two of our discussion on asylums, we're going to talk a bit about what happened in Rosemary's lobotomy and the part that played in what's coming next, which is the collapse and abandonment of the state hospital system. Thanks for joining us, and if you'd like to support our work, you can find us on Patreon for sneak previews of upcoming podcasts, videos, write-ups, and more. Matt's at After the Final Curtain, and I'm at Abandoned America, which is also where you'll find us both on social media. You can also order Matt's After the Final Curtain book series through your bookseller of choice, and the same goes for my Abandoned America books. See you in part two. Hi, this is Matthew Christopher, creator of the Abandoned America book series, website, and the podcast you're listening to. Thanks for listening, and I hope you're enjoying it so far. If you are, and you'd like to support the podcast and help keep it going, there are three things you can do that'll really help out. The first is simple. Just tell your friends and family about it, or leave a positive review on your podcast platform if they support it. Good word of mouth makes a huge difference. Second, if you'd like to hear early episodes and see exclusive essays and photos that aren't on my website yet, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash abandonedamerica. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash abandonedamerica. Third, if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, just drop me a note at admin at abandonedamerica.org. That's a-d-m-i-n at abandonedamerica.org. Every little bit counts, and I've got some really exciting episodes that I think you'll love coming up. Don't forget, you can also visit my website, abandonedamerica.us, for tons of photo galleries and background info on hundreds of abandoned sites, or order my two Abandoned America books from your favorite retailer.